Good morning. Was here for the for the first time in the amphitheater. She's back there. Honey, take a take a stand up so everybody can see you. There you go. Um, I was telling her that uh, yeah, we have a good crowd, about 700, 800 people, and at least 50 dogs every Sunday. It's, it's great. It's a dog loving community. I haven't I haven't seen what would happen if about 50 cats were to show up, but uh, that might be an interesting scene, huh? We all have transitions in our life. We go through them time and again and again. But I've always asked myself, what makes it different the next time you go through the transition? I think for, for the most part, it's the example of others around us. It's the example oftentimes of our father's and mothers. But when transition comes and we take the leadership as sons and daughters from our parents, sometimes that transition is learned over years, especially with parents. And sometimes it's usually over one major point or a scene in our life that is absolutely memorable. Such is our example today with Abraham and Isaac. Let's pray and then let's ask the Lord to teach us this morning. Father, there are transitions all around us. There are people here today who are in transitions in jobs and careers, perhaps even in marriages. Some have become empty nesters. Some are becoming grandfathers, grandmothers. There's transition even in our church. Our former senior pastor has left. We're looking for a new senior pastor. I'm the transition guy. There's transition all over the place. Would you teach us today from your word? Would you show us that you can do things in transitions that you normally don't do in any other situation? And was it, what is it about Abraham and Isaac that you would have for us today that we can learn from? In Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm going to wear these sunglasses. It gets a little bright. I wasn't sure that I'd need them today, but uh, you'll allow me this, this honor here today. I look like something right out of Blues Brothers, I'm sure. <laughs> I wore my own sun today, so that was helpful. In your sermon notes, you'll see on the back of your program there are the back of the notes, Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told his servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. 
As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but uh, where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At the moment, at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. This is, a, this is quite a passage. You know, there's some questions that I have when I read this. I had at least three. I'm sure there's many more. Why would God command Abraham to sacrifice his own child? Well, first we should realize that God, what God was not doing. God was not tempting Abraham. God was not in, enticing Abraham to do wrong but was testing him to see if he could do or would do what was right. Secondly, God was not instituting or condoning child sacrifice. In Deuteronomy 12.31 and other passages, God abhors child sacrifice. It's important to remember that God prevented the sacrifice from actually occurring. He did not desire the sacrifice as an act of worship or for any other reason beyond testing Abraham. Number three, God was not telling Abraham to do something wrong. God has the right to take human life. It's under his moral authority and could therefore authorize Abraham to do so in any particular case he desired. Had Abraham decided on his own accord to sacrifice Isaac, he would have been wrong. And his act would have been condemned by God, as were other human-initiated sacrifices. Well, the second question then is, why in the world would God give this command? The point was for Abraham to demonstrate that he trusted God completely and placed him above all else, even his own son. Though God, of course, already knew that Abraham had faith in him, it was necessary for Abraham to prove it through action. In James, we're told that his faith was made complete by what he did. In fact, the Greek word there says, and faith was brought to its goal. We've often wondered about this this, this uh, kind of competing test, as it were, between faith and works. And James says that without faith or without works, faith is dead. You see, it is the work, it is the cooperating and the corresponding work that brings faith to its goal. If you're sitting here and praying to be a better father, a better mother, and that's your prayer every night to your, for your kids then there's going to have to be some kind of corresponding. There's going to have to be some kind of cooperating work that bring that faith, that promise, that desire to its goal. Dads, when you take your sons out on a camping trip or when you take them and play golf with them or you play catch with them in the backyard, moms, when you teach them some routines around the house, when you, when, when you have that mother-daughter time or that mother-son time, you are bringing your desire, that prayer request, to its goal. 
It would be how silly it would be for someone to come into a house and talk to a father and he's sitting there and he's got a hammer and he's got a nail and he's pounding nails into his wall. What are you doing? I'm doing some work. Really? Why are you doing the work? Because I want my faith to reach its goal. Well, what do you believe in God for? I want to be a brother father. So it says that faith without some work is dead. So I'm going to hammer these nails in. That's my work and hoping that I become a better father. Well, we need a few smart pills here. There has to be a corresponding and a cooperating work with that in order for faith to be brought to its goal. If you want to be a better husband and you pray that at night, then when you date your wife and take her out on a date night, when you play golf with her or you, or you do some other things, go shopping with her, <laughs> swallow hard on that one, and, and, and you do those kinds of things, you're bringing faith to its goal. That was what Abraham wanted to do. Because of his actions, not only God, but Abraham, his family, and future generations knew that Abraham trusted God. This trust was important because it indicated that Abraham had the proper relationship with God. In fact, he was treating God as God deserves to be treated and could benefit from God's good plans for his life. Another question arises in my mind, and that is, wasn't it wrong for Abraham to obey God to do something like this? God's command to Abraham was not wrong. As we said before, God's moral authority says he has the right to take human life and therefore had the right to command Isaac's death. But Abraham had known God for many years prior to this. So he knew God's character and he knew God had the right to give this command. Had Abraham initiated the sacrifice or followed the order on his own or for somebody else who was not speaking for God, that would have been wrong. Furthermore, Abraham knew that God had promised his offspring through Isaac so he gave him reason to believe that God did not intend for Isaac to die permanently. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. And he who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive back Isaac back from the death. Some have questioned whether Abraham even loved Isaac. That's why he was willing to sacrifice him. But the passage itself, as well as other places in Genesis, point out to the fact that Abraham loved his son very much. In fact, in Genesis 17, 19, it says, Isaac was the only child of his beloved wife, Sarah, the son promised to him by God. In Genesis 21, 8, he held a feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. On Genesis, 20, Genesis 22, 2, God refers to Isaac as your only son, Isaac, whom you love. In Genesis 24, verses 1 through 4, he made a special effort to give Isaac a very godly wife. And in Genesis 25, 5, Isaac received all of Abraham's inheritance. You know, the reality is that we see three important aspects of how God works in relation to faith, and more importantly, how these lessons are observed by future generations for years to come in the realm of leadership. That is transition. Isaac, and I do believe this, that when Abraham died at age 175 years old in Genesis 25-7, and Isaac took over for his dad, he remembered very vividly the time that his father bound him up 
And he realized that leadership in any dimension would begin and end with the ultimate of obeying God the Father. Sometimes we ask, who suffered more, Abraham or Isaac? I know we say that to our kids when we're about to spank them. This hurts me more than it does going to hurt you. And you can just see the kid looking up at you. Really? But it's tough for us. And yet the question is asked, not so much who suffered more, but why are we so concerned about the act of suffering? Because it's most often when through pain we learn, we grow, we accomplish. Now let's get a picture of this. Somebody who said, well, why didn't Abraham just tell Isaac the truth? Why didn't he just give him the full story? And so the conversation might have gone like this, you know, uh, well, Dad, where are we going today? Well, we're going up to the mountain. Well, what are you going to do there? Well, we're going to worship. Well, uh, what's the worship going to look like? Well, we're just going to go and kind of play it by ear. Dad, you're being a little evasive. Could I get a little more detail? So finally, Abraham breaks down and he tells him, okay, here's the plan. We're going. It's going to take about three days, maybe four, and then we're going to build this altar. There's not going to be a ram. You're going to be the sacrifice. So as Isaac bolts for the door, can you get the picture? As he runs out the door, starts running down the trail, and Abraham says to Sarah, where's my camel? And he jumps on the camel with his robes flowing, Running after Isaac saying, Isaac, we can work this out, huh? No, that's not what happened. The issue here is in three points that Isaac will long remember. Number one, the obedience of Abraham. Perhaps a beginning point would be what is the importance of asking God or God asking for his son why would God ask for his son? Because, because you see, in that time, in that, in that place, and in those years, a man's legacy was his son. A man's legacy was his children. God wasn't asking for just something incidental. He was asking for Abraham's legacy. In fact, in Genesis chapter 15, it says in verse 12, As the sun was going down, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a terrifying darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they'll be oppressed as slaves for 400 years, but I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end they will come away with great wealth. And as for you, you will die in peace and will be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land, for the sins of the Amorites do not warrant their destruction. And the, you go on in Genesis chapter 15, and God is making a covenant with Abraham. He's going to bless him. In fact, he says, I'm going to, he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. You're going to have a great name. You shall be a blessing. You'll bless them that curse you. You will curse them that curse you. You will bless all the families of the earth through you. There is going to be a tremendous covenant that I'm going to give to you. 
And then he tells Abraham to uh, part the animals in half because that's the way they made a covenant with each other. And the people would, would, put, those co- would, would put those animals, to depart, the parts on either side, they would have the animals. And then the two parties that were making the covenant would walk between the parts and they would covenant to one another that they would never breach it, never break it. But a sleep overcame Abraham. And he rose, he woke up because there was a noise and, and there he saw kind of a smoking lamp that was going down between the parts themselves. It was a picture of God making the covenant with himself that he would not break the Abrahamic covenant. It's one thing for you and I to make a covenant with each other. We do that in marriage. At least the Christian perspective of marriage is not a contract that the state of Colorado holds. It is a covenant with God and with a man and with a woman. It is not to be breached. It is not to be broken. But it is a whole different deal when God makes a covenant with himself. His character cannot break his own covenants. And so the Abrahamic covenant stood. And he promised that he would give them, give Abraham and make of him a great nation and be blessed through his son Isaac. It was his legacy. What's the bottom line for us today? I would ask this morning, what are our Isaacs? What is our legacy that God may want? You know the story as well as I do. Abraham was promised this, and it doesn't come to be, it doesn't come to be, and finally Sarah gets to be very old. And so Abraham's wondering how this covenant is going to come to be, so he takes matters in his own hands. In fact, Sarah says that it's okay, and, 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 and sends in Hagar, her handmaid, and Abraham lays with Hagar, and they have a son by the name of Ishmael. And that has always represented metaphorically throughout the Bible that when we take and try to make God's commands come true, when we try to take over and we don't let him bring it about on his time schedule, we do that in the flesh. And Ishmael has always been the sign or the product of the flesh. But then God works. And Sarah becomes pregnant at a very, very old age, way beyond childbearing years. When she finds out that she's pregnant, she names him Isaac, which... Literally means, he makes me laugh. I think Sarah had a great sense of humor at that point. He makes me laugh. Now there's a problem. Ishmael is about 13 years older than Isaac. And when Isaac is weaned and Abraham throws a party for him, somehow Ishmael insults him at the party. But the bottom line here is that God's glorification is the issue. And God says, I want to take, I want you to take Isaac. And I can imagine what the lump in the throat of Abraham must be and say, you're telling me you want to take the one that's promised me, the one that not in the flesh, but the one that I did in the spirit, that's the one you want. Yes. Abraham says, I have the ultimate trust in you. I believe that you're the God who will bring about the promise that you have made because I believe that nothing stops the promises of God, even if it means the resurrection of my Isaac. You see, what Abraham did not do with Isaac, God did with his own son. 
But it wasn't just the obedience of Abraham. It was also the observation of Isaac this morning. Can you imagine Isaac kind of watching this and growing up with all this? Watching his mother and father get it straight? They did not agree on everything. Scripture indicates that Isaac was raised in accordance with God's commands. He was nursed at the proper time, probably until he was two or three, and Abraham and Isaac would have certainly worshipped together. Abraham would raise Isaac in the statutes of God Almighty. A feast was thrown on the day when he was weaned, and again in agreement with custom, it was the feast that Sarah accused Ishmael of mocking Isaac. With the birth of Isaac, Hagar and Ishmael seemed to have disappeared. They kind of vanished from the text. I would understand that naturally resentment would have arisen between the camps of Ishmael and Isaac, with Abraham caught in the middle. Some scholars say that Ishmael was about 16. Abraham and Isaac were to be the ancestors of God's promised seed. Ishmael, however, was also blessed by God. However, it became apparent that the two parties were not going to be able to live with each other now. Sarah's words appeared overly harsh and bitter in verse 10. She makes it clear that she will have no part of Isaac and Ishmael coexisting. And Ishmael is to be removed. She says, wherefore, she said unto Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. One senses this Abraham's deep despair with his wife's demands. He does love Ishmael. Though not the promised son, he's still a blessed son nevertheless. The account of Genesis states, the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. However, God reassures him that he will take care of Ishmael. As is typical of God, he takes a bad situation and works it out for his glory. Ishmael would become the father of a nation as well. We know that that nation to be the Arab nation today. And also of the son of the bondwoman, will I make a nation because he is thy seed. Meager preparations appear to be made for the departure of Hagar and Ishmael. All Hagar and Ishmael are given is bread and water. This certainly seems a bit harsh and cruel. But God would provide for the needs of the two. He felt they had all they needed with God's protection. But Isaac saw this. He wasn't blind. And let me tell you something. He knew that when he took over leadership, someday his leadership would be tested as well. But Isaac's observation is that his father never flinched, wavered, shook, trembled, oscillated, quivered, wondered, or even questioned. He just obeyed. That's why transitions prove whether or not the previous leadership did their job. And what God has to do to make the new leadership strong. There are no perfect leaders, ladies and gentlemen. I think you know that. And so every time there's a transition, God is about his corrective grace. And bringing about new things that will make everything stronger. But the final point I want to make this morning is not just the obedience of Abraham and the observation of Isaac. It is the control of God. Isaac would not be spared, for he himself was given as a sacrifice. But the qualities of God are huge. They're in total control. You see, because they go beyond death. You and I, if we want to think about something in this world, we just think about when somebody dies, that's it, game over. Mm -mm. Not in the spiritual realm. In this transition, when Isaac took over, he would see the qualities that he had been legacied. Just made up a new word. He had been legacied. 
He saw submission, he saw surrender, and he saw sacrifice. You know, I did go through the 60s, and I did remember the 60s. <laughs> it, was a, it was a picture in the 60s of sin and redemption. There was action and counteraction. There was law and there was disorder. There was obedience and there was lawlessness. There was health and there was physical destruction. There was authority and there was rebellion. It was a time of opposites. But I'll tell you one thing. It was the all-time period of all of history of the United States' most selfish hour. We saw selfishness running rampant at a time that we've never seen it before. Even our music displayed it. No one will ever forget Frank Sinatra standing up and said, and I stood tall and did it my way. The heck with everybody else. I did it my way. The promise of that time, and I think in most times, is that it is always that the promise it was always greater than the product. The picture of God's redeeming grace when God causes a transition, all the history of God is involved in bringing about his redemptive promises. And Isaac saw it. Abraham obeyed it. And God controlled it. We're in a time of transition at Dillon Community Church. I hope for those of you who've got those gnomes, you will pray for this, as Mark asked. You will remember us in these next months. Because our greatest desire at Dillon Community Church is we do want to obey. We do want to observe. And most of all, we want the control of God in our church. Now we can stand back and see the story in clear perspective. Did God, Abraham, did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac? Yes. Was it a legitimate request? Yes. Did Abraham know in advance how the story would end? No. Specifically, did he know about the ram in the thicket? No. Well then, what was it that Abraham knew? Abraham knew that what God had asked him to do, and he knew that God had promised to give him a son through whom he would bless the world. What he didn't know was how God was going to reconcile his promise to bless the world through Isaac and his command to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. It is at this point that we see Abraham's faith at its highest and best. Even though the command made no sense from a human point of view, Abraham intended to obey it anyway. He meant to obey God's command even though it was meant killing God's promise. How could a man do such a thing? Because he believed that God could raise him from the dead. And for 2,000 years, Christians have seen a story, a picture of death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Genesis 22, we see what a man would do for the love of God, but at Calvary, we see what God would do for the love of man. Abraham was only asked to sacrifice Isaac. God actually sacrificed his only son. More than that, Jesus endured physical death and spiritual death to obtain redemption for sinners. When God's hand was raised at Calvary, there was no one to cry out, Stop! Do not harm the child. There was no ram in the thicket to offer in his place, so God's hand fell in judgment on his own son, and Jesus died for you and me. I sure hope you know him today. Abraham offered his son, the father offered his son. Isaac carried wood, Jesus carried the cross. Isaac was laid on an altar, Jesus was nailed to a cross. 
Abraham was willing to put his son to death. The father willed that the son should die. The ram was offered in the place of Isaac. Christ was offered in the place of sinners. Abraham received his son back figuratively, and Jesus literally rose from the dead. What are we supposed to take away from the story of Abraham and Isaac? Well, folks, when I read Genesis 22, I was struck by something God said to Abraham after the great trial was over. The ram sacrificed, Isaac spared, the promise reaffirmed. It comes as a happy ending to a very great trial. God commends Abraham by saying, You have not withheld from me your son, your only son. You did not withhold from me, God says. I asked for your most precious possession, your legacy, and you gave it to me. In Watchman Nee's book, he said, We approach God like little children with open hands, begging for gifts. Because he's a good God, he fills our hands with good things. Life, health, friends, money, success, recognition, challenge, marriage, children, a nice home, good job. All the things we count at Thanksgiving when we count our blessings. And so like children, we rejoice in what we have received and run around comparing with other children what we have. When our hands are finally full, God says, my child, I long to have fellowship with you. Reach out your hand and take my hand. But we can't because our hands are too full. God, we can't, we cry. Put those things aside and take my hand, God says. No, we can't. It's too hard to put them down, we cry back. But I'm the one who gave them to you in the first place. And we say, oh God, what you've asked is too hard. Please don't ask us to put these things aside. And God quietly answers and says, you must. We can never have transitions where selfishness takes place. It is only in the arena of surrender and willingness to give up that greatness and those possessions that his greatness and his immortality is seen. This morning I ask you, what is your Isaac this morning? Mom, dad, and the children that will be coming from your family. And as they take the leadership and as you begin to fade into the distance and they begin to rise, what will they see and what do they see? What is their observation? They will see your obedience. They will witness the control of God as you put your hands open and say, I choose the fellowship with God. This morning we sang that great hymn, Standing on the Promises of Christ my King. Through eternal ages, let his praises ring. Wow, what a, what a line. This morning as we close I would simply invite you to say this morning of the transition that you may be facing in your life. May God give you the grace to put down the Isaacs of your life. Because I will tell you this, if you're willing to do that, the intimacy and trust that you gain with God will be observed by the sons and the daughters and the people around you. And they will say, that is what I choose. No wonder the Old Testament says, choose you this day whom you will serve. God says, you choose me, and you will live.
May God grant us his life throughout this week and in the months to come as our intimacy becomes stronger with him on a day-by-day basis. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, our grace for our children does not even compare for your, that you are your grace for us. You have witnessed to us, and you've sent us, and you've given us your love, your compassion, your forgiveness, and your life. May we be stewards of that in a very positive way. And may we obey, may our children observe, but may it always be the control of God in our life. And may we see the transitions, whether they're in our personal lives or even in our churches, as times of correction and lifting up where you will take actually our legacy, if need be, and replace it with something even greater. For if you have promised to never leave us or forsake us, then we can rest in that promise. As I close this morning, I wonder if there might be even one here today who would say, Dr. G, I, I've attended church all my life. I've sat in a lot of congregations. Today I sit here. But I'm not sure that I have actually taken the, the actual opportunity to invite Christ into my life. Right now, while it's relatively quiet, a little music in the background, you would simply say and invite Jesus Christ to not just be someone who you talk about or study, but someone you would say, I didn't realize that God gave his only son for me because of my sin. I choose this day to invite him into my life, to be my Lord and my Savior. I confess my sin before you, God, and I invite Christ into my life to forgive my sins and make me into the person you want me to be. Lord, you hear those prayers. You hear those thoughts. You you register with those kinds of thoughts and thinking in our minds. And for those of us who do know you, maybe our prayer today would be, Lord, I'm willing to lay whatever I have to lay down in order to have that intimacy with you, to know that even my life is being watched and observed constantly. And as I do that, I'm preparing a legacy for my kids. I'm preparing a legacy for my church. I'm preparing a legacy for my grandchildren. Oh, God. Give me the right to lay that down and the privilege of doing that. That they might see and they might know that even though they observe and I obey, it's still under your total control. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Let me ask you this as I leave and as Mick leads us in one final song. If you did pray that prayer today or those thoughts registered with you that you would like to know Jesus Christ or you invited him into your life today. Any one of us here up on the stage or many of them of the elders are, and people of the church are around, you probably know them. We just have one rule at Dillon Community Church. Just go up to one of us and say, hey, where do I go from here? We'll know exactly what you're talking about. We'll help you with some follow-up and get you started on this new adventure of knowing Christ. 
for all of us who do know Christ, may this be a day in which we surrender and we see God's leadership in our lives being left as a legacy for those around us who are observing. Thank you. God bless you. Have a strong week. Let's stand and let's sing together as Mick leads us.